she's here. Well, if, you, if you've been here, you know we're in this series called The Story. And actually, today is our last day in the series called The Story for a while. We're going to take a break uh, for about five weeks. We're going to be on break until after our anniversary uh, celebration. And we'll talk more about why that is here in a few minutes. But we're in this series called The Story, and it's based on this book called The Story. And uh, the story is kind of a compilation of uh, NIV scripture that tells the entire story of the Bible in a way that's easy to read. It's kind of in a novel format, and it's been really great, I think, for our church. Have you guys enjoyed this so far? You guys, you guys like this? We're in chapter 13 of the story today, and uh, and so as a church, we're going to go through the whole Bible this year, and so I'm really excited about that. But what what I'm worried about most of all is that if you come in the middle of this series, you'll feel like you've missed out. And so from time to time, we just want to give you an update and tell you where we've been so that if you come in the middle of of one of these series or you miss a week or you miss two weeks, you don't miss out on what's going on in this great story of the Bible. And so here's what's happened so far. We started in the beginning. And in the beginning, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. Uh, He created the planets and the stars and the moon and, and the mountains and the oceans. But there was one thing that he created differently than everything else. The Bible tells us that God created people in a special way. He created people by breathing life into us. And he created us to be in a relationship with us. And and that's what God did. He set up this special place called the Garden of Eden where the first two people could be in communion with God. But as we're prone to do, uh, we make mistakes sometimes and the first people messed up. And so they got kicked out of the garden. But that started a, a continuous pursuit by God of us. Like God wasn't content to let the first people just be kicked out and never see them again. He kept started right from that time pursuing us. He wants to be in a relationship with us. He keeps trying to help us find our way back to him. And that's why that's our mission at Genesis Church, helping people find their way back to God, because that's what God's doing, and we want to be a part of that story. But, but people kept messing up. They kept making mistakes. And so God decided at one point he was going to start over. And so he raised up a man by the name of Noah. And he allowed Noah and his family to survive while everyone else in the human race was wiped out. And it's a devastating story, and I think it shows us just like how devastating our sin is to God. But then God started raising up new people, new leaders. He, 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 he called a man named Abraham because of his faith. Uh, and he said that Abraham would have as many descendants as there were stars in the sky. Well, there was a problem with that, and that was that Abraham didn't have any kids. And he was kind of getting up there. But, but when Abraham turned 100, uh, he had a son by the name of Isaac. And, and God started working in his family through Isaac. And he gave Isaac a son by the name of Jacob. And Jacob later changed his name to Israel. And he became the father of this group of people we now know as the nation of Israel. It's a group of people that God said would be his special possession, like his, his holy nation. And so that's what we've seen. We've watched this group of people go through good times and bad times. And, and we saw him raise up a young man by the name of Joseph who rescued the nation of Israel from famine. And he raised up a man by the name of Moses who rescued the nation of Israel from slavery. And they ended up, by God's grace and through the courage of a leader by the name of Joshua, in this land that we call the Promised Land. And it's called that because it was a land promised to Abraham about 700 years uh, before the Israelites got there. And so since then, uh, the last few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been talking about some of the leaders, some of the first leaders in this nation of Israel. We talked about judges, uh, people like Deborah and Samson and Samuel, who were the judges of nations, of of the nation of Israel. And then the last three weeks, we've been talking about the first kings of Israel, a king by the name of Saul. And then the last two weeks, we've been talking about a king by the name of David. And, And as we've read these stories, what we've tried to do is we've tried to learn something. 
Okay, we've tried to take this scripture and apply it to our lives. And through the reading and study of scripture, I believe that we can learn about the heart of God for sure. But we can also learn uh, some stories that help us make better decisions, that, that help influence what we believe and help us live with fewer regrets. And that's what we're trying to do. Now, now really, I believe there are a couple different ways that we can get application from Scripture. And, and the one that we've used the most is kind of the uh, seeing what happens in the moment. I'll call it the in the moment uh, method. And so that's when you look at a situation and you look at a person that's put into a situation and you say, how did they react? You know, so Abraham with his faith, how did he react when he was called by God? We talked about that. You know, David, when faced with Goliath, how did he react? And so that gives us some, some instruction for our life if we're in that situation. So the, in the moment. The second one is what I want to call the black box approach. Okay, and this is one that we haven't really used yet, but it's the one we're going to use today. Now, here's, here's why I call it the black box approach. You, you know when you have a, a plane crash that happens, and fortunately it doesn't happen very often, but when you have a plane crash, it's a big story, right? It's a big news story. Uh, it's, it's talked about for weeks on end, and, and they bring investigators from all over the country, these, these uh, people that work for the government, that are there to find out what happened and how do we prevent it from happening again, right? And, and so you'll get people from the transportation agencies and the FAA, and, and they, they're investigating the crash, but they'll never comment on anything until they find the what? The black box, right? They want to find the black box, which I'm not sure why it's called that. In most airplanes, it's actually fluorescent orange. Uh, which makes it easier to find. Uh, but the technical term for this piece of equipment is the flight data recorder. It's the flight data recorder because it captures the data. It records the data from the flight. And so when they open up this black box, they can see everything they need to know about what was going on before and during the plane crash. So they'll see, you know, how fast the plane was going. What was the altitude? What direction was it headed? You know, what was the pilot doing at the time? What was being said in the cockpit? And so as they open up the black box... They can see what happened leading up to the crash, and hopefully they can find something that prevents another crash just like it, right? Well, some of these real events from these real people that lived thousands of years ago, I think can provide kind of a black box for us. As, as we look at their lives, we can take a look at their story and open up this black box and, and take a peek and really figure out, you know, not just what happened, not just what went wrong, but how we can prevent that from happening in our lives. And so that's the approach we're going to take today. Last week we looked at David, and David was the king of Israel, and we looked at how he made a mistake, all right? But that in one defining moment, he made the right decision, uh, the decision to admit his sin, to own up to his mistake, and, and then God changed his legacy and changed his future because he made that mistake, allowed David's family to retain power in Israel. In fact, because of David's uh, faithfulness in that, we get the lineage of Jesus through the family of David. But that uh, David allowed to retain power in Israel first came from one of his sons, a son by the name of Solomon. And Solomon is the one we're going to talk, to, uh, talk about today. Well, if you open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 4, or we're going to talk from the story in uh, chapter 13, uh, we're going to talk about Solomon. We're going to learn some things about Solomon before we talk about the one thing that's in the black box that we probably need to know about. 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon's like that friend you have, okay? Do any of you have that friend that seems to have so many things going for them and they do everything well? Like, like your friend is, a, is in a management position and they work 50 to 60 hours a week and they do great and they're constantly advancing in their career, but they're also 
at home every night having dinner with their kids and their kids are high achievers and they do well in school and they, they play well in sports and, and they have all these hobbies. You know, they're, they're a great chef, for instance, and they know everything about Greek literature and, and they host their own internet television show and like they're building a hovercraft in their garage in their spare time. Do you guys have that friend? You, you know that person? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of what Solomon is like, all right? He's got all these things going for him. He's got all these things going on. And in fact, before we open his black box, let's just take a minute or two and see what we know about him. And there are going to be seven things that we talk about, and these are in your worship program if you want to follow along in your notes. Number one is this. This is what most people know about Solomon. Solomon was wise. All right, Solomon was wise. In 1 Kings 4.29, we see this. <clears throat> God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. And so what we saw before that, uh, if you'd read the story, you see uh, God said to Solomon, ask me what you want and it will be given to you. Now I wonder if you were in that situation, what would you ask for? Maybe to have won the Powerball jackpot last night. Maybe to have a child. Maybe to have more power or influence. Maybe you'd ask for more wishes. I don't know. Well, Solomon, who who could have asked for wealth, he could have asked for power, he could have asked for women, okay? Instead, he asked for wisdom. And not just for his own sake. In fact, what he said when God told him that, he said, you know, I'm only a little child and I don't know how to lead these people. So I need your wisdom to help with that. And God was so enamored with this request. He was so pleased that he gave Solomon wisdom, but he also gave him all these other things that he could have asked for. In fact, Solomon became so wise that these great leaders, these kings and queens from all over the known world would come to him and ask him questions. And they would come to him and they would see his wealth and they would see his wisdom and they would just be overwhelmed. They would be blown away. In fact, there's just this one example uh, of a visit that he got from a woman by the that we call the Queen of Sheba, okay? And she was from uh, Sheba, far off land. We don't know exactly where Sheba was, but most scholars uh, think that Sheba could have been as far away as Ethiopia. And so this would have been a long walk, a long ride uh, to Israel. And so uh, uh, the author of 1 Kings tells us that she asked him, the Queen of Sheba, asked him all of her hardest questions. And then in 1 Kings 10.3, it says, Solomon answered all of her questions, and nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. I just want to talk to the guys for a minute. Okay, ladies, you, you talk amongst yourself. Guys, you've tried to explain things to your wife, right, or your girlfriend, and somehow it doesn't always come out of your mouth as good as it sounds in your head, right? How much wisdom does it take to have a woman ask all of her hardest questions and to explain everything to her satisfaction. How hard is that? I, I want some of that wisdom. I mean, if that's what he's got, I want some of Solomon's wisdom, right? Okay, ladies, you can come back now. Solomon was a wise man. We know that. And fortunately for us, we also know this. Number two is this. Solomon was a writer. Solomon was a writer. Because he was wise and because he wrote things down, he was able to provide you know, warnings and instructions for us. Now, we all need wisdom. And sometimes what we're looking for isn't really that profound. It's, it's just simple stuff. It's obvious. You know, like my wife's hairdryer. I was looking at my wife's hairdryer and there's a label that actually says, do not use while sleeping. Is this a problem that we have in society? We're so tired today that we have to blow dry our hair while we're asleep or, or our iron at home actually says, do not iron clothes while on the body. 
I mean, is this a time saver for people, really? The other day, I got out some Christmas lights, believe it or not, and because of a project, that's a different story, but it was another project, but there was a label on the Christmas lights that said, for indoor or outdoor use only. Am I missing another option here? I mean, I don't... But those aren't the kind of instructions that Solomon gave. What he gave was real wisdom. And a lot of it is recorded in the story, but there's even more recorded in your Bible. Now, Solomon is credited with writing a thousand and five songs and 3,000 Proverbs. In fact, some of our most quoted scripture today comes from the wisdom of Solomon. So scriptures like this, Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Or Proverbs like this one, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Or Proverbs like this one, a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. You know, great wisdom. You know, Solomon has great wisdom. Proverbs has great wisdom. In it. In fact, as we take a break from the story, the next five weeks, maybe it'd be a good idea for you to read through Proverbs. You know, Proverbs has 31 chapters. We're going to be away from the story for five weeks. Hopefully you've been reading along in the story with us. But over the next five weeks or 35 days, what if you took one chapter of Proverbs a day you could read through all 31 of them, have a few days left before we get back to the story. So that's a challenge to you. Why don't you read through Proverbs while we're away from the story? That'd be great. So uh, Solomon was wise. He was a writer. Number three is this. Solomon was rich. Solomon was rich. In, in 960 BC, almost 500 years after the Israelites built what we call the tabernacle, which was a temporary structure to house uh, worship for God, uh, Solomon started working on the first permanent temple. To God. He hired 180,000 workers, and they didn't have backhoes or cranes or augers, so it took a long time to build this, this temple. You know, it took, in fact, seven years to build this temple. So Solomon hired 180,000 people for seven years to build this temple. Now, interestingly enough, at the same time that they were building the temple, Solomon actually hired some people to build a palace for himself. And the palace took 13 years to build almost twice as long as the temple. Maybe that's a clue as to what's in Solomon's black box. But even besides building, Solomon built ships and cities. He built a palace for one of his wives, who was the daughter of Pharaoh. He had thousands of horses and chariots. And at one time, it was said that Solomon owned 50,000 pounds of gold. 50,000 pounds of gold. Now, in today's dollars, that's $1.1 billion just in gold not to mention everything else that he owned. So we know that Solomon was rich. Number four is this. Solomon was a worshiper. Solomon was a worshiper. We know he built the temple. You know, God gave him that responsibility uh, instead of his father, David. And that's a fascinating story. If you haven't read that, uh, you should read it. But when Solomon goes to dedicate the temple, we see in 1 Kings 8, this prayer of dedication, this like heartfelt prayer of dedication for the temple. And it's easy to see that Solomon had a heart that wanted to do what was right. Now you see that prayer, he, you know that he loved to, he intended to lift up the Lord. He, he wanted to exalt God, so we know he was a worshiper. Number five was this, and this is something else that most people know about Solomon. Solomon was a ladies' man. I mean, unfortunately for Solomon, one of the things he's most known for is his wives. Now, we've read several stories in the Old Testament so far of men who had several wives. But Solomon had, are you ready for this? 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
Now, concubines is kind of a fancy word for more wives, okay? I mean, they're like live-in girlfriends, all right? So he had a thousand women all together. Now, for Solomon, this was in direct conflict with God's plan. And first of all is this, even though we see polygamy all throughout the Old Testament, God never endorses it. All right, it's, and in fact, every time we see a man with multiple wives, it always ends up in trouble. Every story we read about it, it ends up in trouble, and it's no different for Solomon. But second of all, even though it's culturally accepted to have multiple wives, uh, Solomon had wives from other nations. I mean, and we know that God's plan for marriage from Genesis was one man and one woman. Culture said something different. But even if Solomon had followed culture... Who knows what would have happened? But what we know now is that he had wives from other nations. In fact, uh, in 1 Kings 11, 1, it says that King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. But nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Now, why? Why would he do this? You know, why would someone who's clearly so blessed by God, I mean, we can see that he's blessed by God, why would somebody, uh, you know, make that decision, go against God's plan? Well, I think it's a tragic part of Solomon's lower story, and it's, it's this, it's number six. Solomon was unhappy. He wasn't satisfied. And something in his life was missing. The king who had it all, he had wisdom, he had money, he had abilities, he had women. He wasn't satisfied. You could say that his life was unfulfilling, that it lacked purpose. And he tried to fill it with all of these temporary things to try to make him happy. And while we read about Solomon's life in the book of 1 Kings, we can read more about him from him in a book called Ecclesiastes. And you while 1 Kings is kind of Solomon's biography, okay, Ecclesiastes is like his diary. It, it's, it's his black box. It's where he comes out and says, okay, here's, here's my life. Here's what I've done. Here's how I've lived. Here's what I've learned. Read this and learn from it. And so what we see is this. There's a, a really powerful, uh, it's kind of a long passage, but I want to read it to you. There's a powerful uh, section at the start of Ecclesiastes 2 where Solomon writes this. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure and find out what is good. But that also, that pleasure, also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as came greater by far than anyone, or I'm sorry, as well, all the delights of the hearts of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So he says, I had everything. All right, I had fun, I had good times, I had parties, I had people, I had women, I had people singing to me all the time. And in all this, I was still wise. I denied myself, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eye desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was my reward for all my labor. And then verse 11, he says this, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, 
And when I toiled to what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Here's what Solomon said. He said, I tried laughter and entertainment. I tried drinking and partying. I tried important projects and houses and hobbies. I had servants who waited on me hand and foot, maids, butlers, masseurs, personal shoppers, personal singers. And all of that was meaningless. But what Solomon's best known for was his pursuit of women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He, he thought that would make him happy. I probably could have helped him out in that and told him that wouldn't. I could have saved him lots of trouble. And, and do you think every time Solomon got married, he thought, maybe this will be the one, you know? I've got 600 wives, but maybe this will be the one and we'll fall in love for the rest of our lives. But over and over again, Solomon, as he reflects on his life, this man with unlimited money, unlimited power, unlimited wisdom, unlimited women, he says it's meaningless. It's it's chasing the wind. You know, I think we have something in common with Solomon, maybe more than we're willing to admit. I mean, as Americans, we can so relate to Solomon because if you talk to the average American and ask him or her what the meaning of life is, they're probably going to say something about the pursuit of happiness. You know, that's what's important. I find what makes me happy. I do what I love. You know, if, if, do what feels good. You know, if it don't hurt nobody, it's all good, right? And, and even if they don't say that, most of us think that. That's, that's what we think about, you know. A, a nicer car will make me happy. A bigger house will make me happy. A better body will make me happy. Or a nicer tan or... A better wardrobe will make me happy. A different wife will make me happy. A different husband will make me happy. Whatever it is, we're all about looking to people or things to find happiness. That's exactly what Solomon did. I mean, he went looking for happiness in things and in money and in in women. And his pursuit of love, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of physical satisfaction didn't stop his decline. It just accelerated it. So what went wrong? What went wrong with Solomon? What's inside his black box? I think we find the answer in 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, verse 3 says, He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And this is key. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And this is what ultimately caused Solomon's crash. It's the seventh and final truth about Solomon. It's this. Solomon had a divided heart. Solomon had a divided heart. He, he loved the Lord, but he didn't follow him completely. He, he built a temple for the Lord, but he built a bigger palace for himself. He, he followed God when it was to his advantage, but when it wasn't, he went his own way. He had a divided heart. How does something like that happen? I mean, Solomon was someone that God had anointed and had called to be king. He, he had so much going for him. He had so much potential. Early on, he was moving in the right direction even. What happened? It could have been a number of things. I mean, maybe it was all the success and prosperity. We, we see that a lot, don't we? I mean, for instance, why is it so many professional athletes... They have financial troubles right after their careers end. Uh, Allen Iverson is a great example. He played in the NBA for nearly 14 years, 14 seasons before retiring in 2010. And despite making more than $154 million in his NBA career, he was broke less than two years after he retired. His bank accounts were seized to pay some lingering debts that he had. It's a story we see over and over and over again. Is it a prosperity issue with Solomon? 
Maybe it's pride or arrogance. You know, when we're prideful, we're just so set on doing our own thing, aren't we? And we're not paying attention to anybody else. So Charles Bridges says this. He once wrote that pride lifts up a man's heart against God. Now, when we're being prideful, we don't always think about that, about li- that we're lifting up our heart against God. He says it contends for supremacy with him. It contends for supremacy with God. Think about that. When we're prideful, it's like we're actually telling God, I want to be more supreme than you. Is that what it was for Solomon? Was it pride? Well, whatever the reason, we know the cause of his downfall, of his depression, of his sadness, was he had a divided heart. It's interesting when you look back over the last couple weeks of this series, you know, if you were here three weeks ago when we talked about Saul, we saw that he had a hard heart, right? Saul had a hard heart. And as we went through Saul's life, we watched him become prideful and, and, and his heart hardened against God. Much like Pharaoh in Egypt, he just continued to get harder and harder. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about David and how he had a devoted heart. It was fully devoted to God, even though he wasn't perfect, all right, even though he made mistakes, that David became, even as he went through his life, he became more and more humble and he allowed that relationship with God to grow and his heart became even more devoted. But when we get to Solomon, we find that he has a divided heart. He's got this wishy-washy 50-50 thing going on with God. It's a little bit like his wives. Honey, I love you. Oh, wait, one of the others is calling. You know, I've got to go. The Bible says that his heart wasn't fully devoted. Now, it wasn't a dark, evil heart like Saul's was, but it wasn't a devoted heart like David's was. It really wanted to follow. It was a weak heart. That's what it was. I mean, it really wanted to follow God, but where the rubber hit the road, Solomon wasn't willing to fully surrender his heart or his will to God. And ultimately, that caused a lot of grief in his life. Do you want to to know what one of the greatest challenges for me is, and I believe for most Christians today, is that we have divided hearts. Like, we're not completely focused on God. We're not completely committed. And so we'll we'll do things like this. We'll say, I want to follow Jesus, but let's not get carried away. Or or we'll look for satisfaction in everything but our relationship with God. Or, Or we'll try everything we know how to make a situation work out. And if all that doesn't work then maybe we'll pray about it. Or we'll say we've given up our hurt to God, but then we'll still carry around bitterness and anger and frustration. Or we'll show up to church on Sunday, but live differently during the week. In fact, you have people that you work with that because of what they say or how they act or what they do, you would be surprised to know that they go to church on Sunday. And in the same way, there's probably somebody sitting next to you that may be surprised if... They knew what you said during the week or how you acted around your girlfriends or what was on your iPod. It's the dangers of having a divided heart. In fact, Jesus talks about this in the book of Revelation. Uh, There's this great, great verse, a painful verse, but in the book of Revelation, which his apostle John wrote down, uh, he's writing to a church, okay, and, and he's writing down the words of Jesus. And so John is writing this to a church full of believers, okay, a church not unlike ours. And Jesus says this in Revelation 3, 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want that, do you? Do you want to get to the end of your life and have Jesus say, you make me sick. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I sure don't. In other words, Jesus says this. He says, I wish I knew where I stood with you. Like, I wish you'd tell me, are you in or out? None of this 50-50 stuff. Do you want to follow me or not? 
None of this heathen on Saturday, church on Sunday stuff. Because Jesus says, I, I want you to follow me. But even if I knew you were out, at least I'd know where I stood with you. It's a problem. It's a challenge for all of us. It was a problem for Solomon too because he gets to the end of his life and he opens up the black box for us. He's looked in all these places for pleasure and here's what he concludes, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. Solomon says, The purpose of my life isn't to find something that makes me happy. It's, it's not to have a fulfilling job, a happy marriage, to raise great kids, to have nice vacations. Even if all that stuff's great. It says the purpose of life is to fear God and obey his commandments. So would, should we be surprised when Jesus comes along later and asks people to give up everything to follow him? Luke nine twenty three. Then he, Jesus, said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You know, Jesus didn't come to earth so that you would behave better or have better manners or so you could get along better with others or to smooth out your rough edges. He didn't come so that you and your family would have a place to go on Sunday mornings. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and to become a new creation. You know, C.S. Lewis says it this way, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. Jesus is looking for people whose hearts are fully devoted to him. And this is really important. If you're a Christian, this is important to know because this is what Jesus is asking of us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is important for you to hear because it means we're not going to do any of this one foot in, one foot out stuff. It means that if Jesus is calling you to follow him, which he is, you can't just say, oh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I like the church. You know, I like their music. Okay, so maybe I'll just, you know, be a part of that for a while. That's not what Jesus is asking he wants all of us, his, our whole heart. That's why he said, whoever wants to follow me should take up his cross daily. Whoever wants to follow me needs to be ready to die to himself or die to herself. And to die daily means it's a decision we make every day we're here on earth. It's a decision that says, I want to have my heart completely devoted to you. Is that a commitment you need to make today? Is that a prayer you need to pray today? There's a great prayer in Psalm 86 that says this, Teach me your way, Lord, that I might rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Well, maybe for you, your next commitment, your next step toward an undivided heart is to be baptized. You know, as you heard earlier in the service and on June 23rd, we're going to have that opportunity. You're going to have that opportunity to stand up in front of your friends and your family and, and your church and say, Today I choose to follow Jesus with my whole heart. It's a public statement of that private decision you've made. And if you've ever made that decision to follow Jesus, but you've not been baptized, what better way to show that you're all in? You know, you can do that on your connection card, or you can go to the baptism page at genesischurch.me to sign up for that. We'd love to have you be a part of that service. It's going to be really powerful. A life with a devoted heart is a life worth living. It's the kind of devotion that will change this world. It's, it's a life that will make those who are far from God see you and say, I want that. Like, 
I want to be a part of that. I don't know what that is. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what she's been up to, but that's the kind of life I want. It's a life that when you get to the end, Jesus won't say, I want to spit you out of my mouth. But he'll look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. When my life is over. That's what I want. Don't you? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you love us like we are, but you're not content to let us stay how we are. I thank you that you've called us to something higher, to something greater. That you want to make the most of us while we're here on earth so that we're prepared to spend eternity with you when we're done here. I thank you for these words this morning, for this story. And uh, Lord, I just, I'm, I'm so thankful for the story of Solomon that we can look back and see the dangers of having a divided heart. And God, I just pray for every person in this, in this service today that, we would, that you would move us closer to having devoted hearts, that you would take us right where we are. And if we're following you, God, that you would, you would bring us all in. And Lord, if we're here today and we're just checking out church and, and, and we're just seeing, we don't know what we believe, God, I just pray that you would take those people right now and would you start moving them a little bit closer to you. God, faith is difficult sometimes, especially in the faith of, face of our lower story. And so as we talk about what it means to have a devoted heart and not a divided heart, we need your faith. We need uh, your promise to be with us all the time. And so would you just, uh, this week even, even today as we leave uh, this service, would you help point us in a direction that would help give us a devoted heart? We need that, God. We need you in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.